Listener Production. The following episode contains discussions about the termination of pregnancies. Listener discretion is advised. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. In the ever-evolving landscape of human sexuality, there are some practices that have endured the test of time. Picture this, a time when the word contraceptive didn't even exist, when the modern marvels we know today, like the IUD, the pill, the condom, seemed as far-fetched as a man coming second. Wow, that's amazing! In ancient civilizations where science and superstition intertwined, our ancestors did seek ways to navigate this delicate dance between pleasure and procreation. Cocktails of lead and mercury were served in ancient China. A very effective contraception if you would rather be dead than have children, I guess. And in medieval Europe, women would adorn their garters with weasel testicle. Yes, that's right, the testicle of a woodland rodent to prevent getting pregnant. Somehow, adding more testicles to the mix oddly didn't decrease the number of pregnancies. Funny that. But the method known in nearly every corner on the earth, even today, the trusty old pull-out method. What, so just the old pull-and-pray method then? Also known as the withdrawal method, pull-and-pray, or if you're the Bible... And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground. Yep, that's from Genesis chapter 38, verse 8 to 9, written over 2,500 years ago. In medical terms, we call this coitus interruptus. But surely we've come a long way since women shoved lemons up their hoo-hahs to prevent pregnancy, right? Well, after we got past the whole women who know about birth control are witches thing of the 1500s, our knowledge of the human reproductive system has grown tremendously and contraceptives along with it. Typically, contraceptives fit into four categories. Sterilisation, which usually involves a bit of snipping, tying, clamping or blocking of the tubes that carry sex cells. Barrier methods, these are your diaphragms or condoms. Hormonal methods, the pill, the greatest invention of the 1960s. And contragestives, the IUD, intrauterine device. Contraceptives mean against fertilisation, whereas a contragestive means against gestation. Hence why the IUD sits inside the uterus, preventing a fertilised egg from ever implanting in the wall of the uterus. And guess what? Some IUDs are a mix of both. The pull-out method, though, it doesn't really fall into any of these categories. Yet, it's becoming more popular among young people. In fact, a CDC report found that although condoms were the most popular contraceptive among young women, the second most popular was the pull-out method, with 60% of adolescent girls reporting to have used it. So it begs the question, is the longest surviving human birth control method pull and pray, all that it's cracked up to be. Hi, 
I'm Dr. Snay Wadwani, women's health GP and advocate, and this is everything from A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. Hey, spermicide's a really ominous sounding word, right? In today's episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Mary Stewart. So Mary, tell us a bit about yourself and your area of expertise. I'm a doctor and I've been working in reproductive and sexual health for over 20 years now. I did quite a lot of work at Family Planning New South Wales, which was really interesting when it comes to contraception. So uh, that was a, a great sort of grounding. And now I work in sexual health and sexual assault. So for those listeners of ours today, it might be a surprise for some of them to learn that the pull-out or the withdrawal method, coitus interruptus, has actually been around forever, hasn't it? But just because it's been around for ages, it doesn't actually mean that it's very effective, does it? No, no. <laughs> we um, Luckily, nowadays, we have much more effective methods. We don't need to rely on it. It's so funny. I see so many young people coming in and I say, so what are you using for contraception? Oh, uh, pull out or withdrawal. And I go, so a wing and a prayer then. Yeah. Or they say nothing and you say, well, what are you doing to stop getting pregnant? They go, oh, he pulls out. (laughs) Well, that's what you're using. (laughs) And it's interesting because they don't want to fall pregnant, but they don't really realise that there's still quite a high chance of pregnancy with that, isn't there? Yeah. And and the pull-out method, let's break it down. What is the pull-out method? So the idea of the pull-out method is that the person with the penis will actually withdraw just before ejaculation. So there's some inherent problems in that plan, isn't mm-hmm. there? <laughs> yes, there are definitely some inherent problems in that, some more scientific than others. So there's actually some research that shows that about 40% of men have sperm in their pre cum or pre-ejaculate. So clearly it only takes one sperm to get pregnant. So even if it's just a tiny amount, there's still a risk. Um, and we, you don't know who those men are, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the other thing is to just bear in mind that even if you think you're safe in a safe part of your cycle and you've used the withdrawal method, if some of those sperm have, have sort of managed to get in there, they can actually live in the body for up to five days. Yeah. And so if you ovulate when you don't expect to, that can result in a pregnancy, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's why the methods that stop ovulation are so effective. And so research is actually showing nowadays that certainly in Australia, this method, the, the pull and pray method, is, is becoming more popular. Why do you think that is? Well, I guess that, you know, it's, it's always been relatively popular because it's easy. You don't have to prepare beforehand. You don't have to have gone to buy some condoms or have contraception already on board. So, you know, it, it doesn't rely on pre-planning. It's cheap and also it doesn't involve hormones. So some people are quite concerned about hormones or they don't want to use condoms because they're concerned about it affecting the pleasure of sex. And so it seems to be an option that a lot of people use, particularly young people. So hormone-based contraceptives, you know, we have pills, we have injectables, we have implants, and some of the IUDs also have hormones. So how does the hormone work? 
Yeah, and we also have the vaginal ring. Oh, yeah, it's not sorry, used forgot about often. that. And the yeah. patch in Which, other parts of the world, yeah. but we don't have it here. We don't have it here. So most of the hormonal methods work by actually stopping ovulation, which is the release of the egg. And so that's why they're so effective if they're used properly. Interestingly, the hormonal IUD doesn't always stop ovulation, but it is one of the most effective methods of contraception. And the thing I really like about that is that it's giving you the hormones right where you need them and you're not necessarily getting as much through your whole body and so there's a lot less side effects. I think some of the stats for the hormonal IUDs as well is that as little as 2% will get into your bloodstream and I think what's also really interesting if you compare the two hormonal IUDs in the market you're talking very small volumes that are released over a very long period of time so like 50 micrograms with one and 19 micrograms with another and when you compare that to the pill you'd be taking way more than that in a daily dose wouldn't you? Absolutely we used to say that it was about the equivalent of two mini pills a week yeah and in the lower dose one would be even less. I think that's really interesting and and you know that release of hormones actually with the IUD isn't a negative thing is it? No, this is what we have to think about with contraception is that there are non-contraceptive benefits as well as contraceptive benefits. So one of the main things with the hormonal IUD is that it will really greatly reduce the amount of bleeding that women get. We, we know that in the time that we've had hormonal IUDs, hysterectomy rates worldwide have actually completely plummeted because women used to have to have a hysterectomy if they had heavy bleeding that couldn't be controlled. Um, whereas the IUD is fantastic at controlling heavy bleeding or even just you know normal menstruation as well. So most people with an IUD, particularly the sort of the standard hormonal dosed one, will find that they get very, very little in the way of a bleed at all. And, you know, we shouldn't have to have a period every month. It's, you know, it's it's not something we should have to put up with. Yeah, that's really interesting as well, Mary, what you touch on there. You know, certainly when I'm in my rooms and I'm talking to my patients and I say, you might not get a period. And they're like, but isn't that a bad thing? And, And it really isn't. I mean, the hormone in the IUDs is thinning the endometrium. So you're still having a cycle because in many, many women, as you said, they're still ovulating. It's just that they they don't bleed because the endometrium is thinner yeah. or it's so thin that there's nothing to shed at that time of the cycle, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And with other hormonal methods as well. And if you're using the pill, you can control that so that you don't have to bleed every month. And I think it is important that people realise that it's not that there's a build-up of something inside, but that it's just not developing in the first place. I think there's a really important role for them also in older women in the perimenopause where they still might fall pregnant, you know, those those ladies often will say, oh, I'm not going to fall pregnant. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But the ovaries can have little bursts of activity and we can get surprise pregnancies, right? Absolutely. Although it's very difficult when you're trying to get pregnant at that age, it is still possible to have an unintended pregnancy. And an unintended pregnancy in your late 40s or mid 40s even, even in your 40s, could be just as difficult as it can be for somebody who's, you know, 14. So it's certainly possible. And I think the other great thing about the hormonal IUD is that around that perimenopause, sometimes the periods become really heavy and irregular. So the hormonal IUD can really sort that out as well. And then it can be used as part of your HRT so, or your really, hormone, hormone therapy. It really is a cure-all <laughs> in that yeah. space, isn't it? It can tick a lot of boxes. I'll have to say a lot of doctors and nurses who work in this area have a hormonal IUD, as Absolutely. I'm sure you know. Uh, yeah, I think I'm on number four or five of mine. So So what about condoms then? You know, we all know about that. 
How, how effective are condoms really? I mean, my experience is that most people, there is user error. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and there can be problems that you don't even necessarily recognise as well. So any method of contraception used properly, apart from probably the withdrawal method, but most methods of contraception can be really effective if they're used properly. But as you said, it's a lot about user error, which is also why something like the IUD, we keep coming back to that, it's the set and forget method. You don't have to do anything. Whereas with the pill, you have to remember every day. With condoms, you have to be using them properly. And so, you know, that's where we end up with problems with efficacy. So when we talk about proper use of a condom, I feel like we need to actually explain this because people have different interpretations, don't they, of what is proper use of a condom? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not, there's quite a few people that I see who say they use condoms, but they're not actually using it for the whole time they're having sex even. Like they might just put it on for ejaculation. And clearly, if you've got an STI, you can be spreading that when the condom's not on. And, um, you know, condoms are your best, our best protection, really, against STIs and give pretty good protection. So the non-hormonal contraceptives. So obviously, we talked about pull and pray, and I think the, the listeners can hear that we're not a massive fan in that space. It's not a very effective contraceptive choice, is it? But what about things like the rhythm method or the natural method? Yeah, so some people think that, you know, if I just download a a natural (laughs) method app, then that's all I need to do. But there's actually a lot of work that you have to do if you're going to use fertility awareness-based methods properly. So yeah, they can be effective. And for some people, it's the only method that they will use for, you know, either ethical or religious or for whatever reasons, their own personal belief systems. Um, Or they just might prefer to use that method but you really have to be looking at several different parameters around your fertility to try to predict when you might be ovulating. And and that can be quite difficult. You touched upon the use of apps, you know, and I think as a society, women have become quite dependent on these apps. And I think we've lost that sort of perspective in a way that our cycles are really individual and they don't really conform to the app, which is drawn upon from, I guess, averages and and that kind of thing. But we're not all average, are we? That's right. And ovulation isn't always predictable. It's based on predicting when you're most likely to next ovulate. But there are lots of things that can affect that. So, yeah, you know, I think that for people who that's the only method that they're prepared to use, then they need to get the right education around how to do it as best as possible. But I think there are a lot more effective methods with Mm. a lot less effort. Absolutely. I mean, it it does incorporate so many different factors, you know, your basal temperature, the mucus, where you think you are in the cycle. There's so many different parameters that you have to monitor. And so many things can affect those parameters to make it ineffective. Let's chat about ovulation cycle for a moment because another thing I hear very often from my patient is that you can only get pregnant on three days of the month. I hear it in from my ladies who are trying to get pregnant where they're only having sex on those three days of the month and, you know, from my ladies who are using the natural method or the withdrawal method to kind of avoid getting pregnant. But they're really only just avoiding those three days. And, I, you know, that's not terribly safe. No, it's not. And, you know, they're 
probably is really sort of three days that you're most fertile, but again, that's unpredictable. So you know, when people are trying to get pregnant, the best thing to do is to have sex every three to five days because we know the sperm will survive that long. And so then you're going to, you know, come across ovulation at some point, hopefully, if you're trying to get pregnant. Um, but yeah, we certainly can't rely on predictable ovulation and just avoiding for, for three days around that. So let's just say a woman who's had an IUD has had it removed. Can they get pregnant straight after? You know, I see so many women going, oh, I just want to get my body back to normal yeah. after you remove my IUD. Um, and, and I'll wait for a year. I don't want to get pregnant for another year, but I just need my body to go back to normal. And that's a real misconception, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And also with the implant as well. Yes, I've, I've yes. Um, known patients to get pregnant within a week of having the implant removed and they were planning to get pregnant, but just not quite that quickly. The, um, the interesting thing about the IUD is, you know, the, this, in theory, you can actually get pregnant from sex you've had before it was removed. So we would usually advise people not to have sex for the week before it's removed in case there are any of those really hardy sperm that get in there and wait for the IUD to be removed and then they can potentially fertilise an egg. So, yeah, definitely um, don't stop using your contraception until you're prepared to get pregnant. And it's a great opportunity to do those things around pregnancy planning, like making sure you're starting to take your supplements, getting your health checks done and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the averages for, for implant and IUD is two to three weeks for the cycle to kick back into gear and, and yeah. oftentimes sooner. I think there's some interesting data out there with removal of IUD, the number of patients who, or the number of ladies who fall pregnant within the first month. It's actually quite high, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, yeah, you can certainly... Well, so with the implant, the, and this is what I reassure patients when they're worried about potential side effects from the hormones in the implant, that once it's removed, those hormones are out of your system within 12 hours. So you're back to your, your normal hormonal controls very quickly. And I think that's also one of the beauties about this group of long-acting reversible contraceptives, that's the IUDs and the implants, that although they last for a really long time, they're actually super reversible, aren't they? Absolutely, and immediately reversible. So it's not a one-size-fits-all then when it comes to contraception, is it? Everyone has different physiologies, mental health may come into play, and there's different wants and needs. So what's, what should be, I suppose, if, if we're advising our listeners out there, what should they be going and asking for or about? Where, where should they prioritise their questions and, and concerns in this space? Yeah, so I think it's important that they are thinking about those things before they come in for the consultation. And I always advise patients to write a list of things they want to ask, particularly when they're being referred to a specialist make sure they've written down the questions they want to ask and to think about all the different things that are important to them around contraception. And obviously for most people that's effectiveness, but for some people they'd prefer to, to trade off effectiveness for other, other things like lack of side effects. So, you know, it's a matter of thinking about what you're needing and what you're wanting out of your contraception. And as we said before, those non-contraceptive benefits yeah, there are some methods like the combined pill that will be really good for, for skin, good for menstrual control, and also good for, for PMS as well. So it's a matter of what you need and having that really good consultation with your doctor to, to look at what's suitable for you, what's important for you. I think there's also the flip side of that, isn't there? That's what's your non-negotiables? What can you really not put up with? I mean, with the best will in the world, there is no perfect contraception. Nope. And I think the reality is, you know, most women will have to balance 
things they don't like with things they do like. But for some women, you know, there's some things that are just, whatever happens, I can't deal with that. Yeah, that's right. And what we haven't talked about is the copper IUD, which definitely has a role to play. And I think that it's uh, increasing in um, in popularity because it is non-hormonal, but it's very, very effective. And again, has that immediate reversibility and long acting effect. But unfortunately, if you're a woman who has relatively heavy periods already, having a copper IUD is not a great option because it makes them a lot heavier and just not suitable. But if you've got light periods to begin with, it might be the perfect thing for you. So let's talk about when things go wrong, right? When we I suppose somebody might have contraception in place, but it fails or they're not using it correctly or they've been pulling and praying and it hasn't worked. (laughs) So, you know, you've got an unwanted pregnancy. What are the options for women? Yes, I think it's important to remember that, you know, with an unintended pregnancy, sometimes it is unwanted. Sometimes it's not necessarily unwanted and it's important that women are aware of all their options. We're lucky we live in a country where you do have the option of having a termination of that pregnancy if you don't want to continue it. Unfortunately, it can still be a little bit hard to access and a bit expensive, so you need to know where to go and who to talk to to try to make sure that you have all those options. Obviously, family planning clinics around Australia all will help women with that, and they'll talk about their options and help them to choose whichever one is best for them. Also, reproductive sexual health clinics, you know, the ones that usually provide terminations, and you know, I'll give a plug for Talkline with family planning in New South Wales. That's a, an information service you can ring and they can give you really good advice or the website as well. I think the other great thing that just happened at the beginning of August is also the availability uh, for medical terminations of pregnancy. And when we, when we talk about medical terminations, we're talking about tablets that we use to basically induce almost a miscarriage yeah. type type process. And the great thing about that is that historically GPs have had to jump through several hoops uh, to be able to prescribe that and to be able to provide that service. And now some of those barriers have actually been removed and prescribing and delivering the service from primary care your general practice, that that's much more easy now. Yeah, and I hope that it does become much more accessible. It really relies on GPs taking up that option, but it does mean it's much easier for them to be able to do that now that they don't have to, you know, do as much prescribed training and, and all sorts of other things to be able to actually prescribe it. Let's talk a bit about emergency contraception. You know, people talk a lot about the morning after pill. There's now more than one morning after pill. And there's also another option for managing, um, you know, that unprotected sexual intercourse episode. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we try not to call it the morning after pill because it can be used for longer than just the morning after. But the more, you know, the, the sooner it's used, the more effective it is. And what a lot of people don't understand is the way that that's working is also to stop ovulation. So if you've just ovulated, it's actually not going to work. Um, but again, we can't predict that. So it's worth trying it. Um, when I'm talking to people who, you know, may be at risk of pregnancy and I ask them about when their last period was to get a sense of how much risk they might be at, if I'm really, you know, if I'm concerned that they may have actually been around that mid-cycle point, then I'll usually talk to them about the copper IUD as well because that's 99% effective at preventing an unintended pregnancy if it's inserted within five days after that sexual act. But, you know, that's not something that everybody wants necessarily wants, but I think it's important women understand that's an option for them. The other thing is that they should understand that the, there are more than one types of the emergency contraceptive pill now. 
And there's another one which is more effective and it can be used up to five days instead of just three days after. But again, the more the, the sooner it's used, the more effective it is. And it's more effective on day one than the other one as well. So not every pharmacy will carry it, but my, you know, a lot of them will. So the other thing women should understand is that they can go to a pharmacy by emergency contraception. They don't need to go to a doctor for it. Fantastic. And I guess the other thing with the copper IUD as an emergency contraceptive is that that can actually be kept in afterwards for sort of up to five or even 10 years for some of the copper devices. And that's your long acting contraception as well, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's those women who are usually considering that anyway. And then I talk to them about it as an emergency contraception that they end up up getting it. And, you know, it can sometimes be tricky to get it within that five day time frame, But, you know, if you speak to the right people and you have that information, then it is possible. So I know we've been talking a lot about the risks of pregnancy going au naturel, but let's talk about STIs. Yeah, but I mean, even if you don't think you've got an STI, just having a regular sexual health checkup once a year is what we'd recommend. Because, you know, some STIs don't have any symptoms at all. It's much better to know if you've got them. They're easy to test for, easy to treat. If somebody does have an STI or if they've got symptoms, it's so important to go and get it checked out because for most things, there are really effective treatments. If you don't treat it, it can go on to cause problems with your fertility in the future in particular. What's your advice on on sort of STI screening? You know, we say yes when you have a new partner, you know, you should definitely have an STI screen. I guess one of the problems in that space is, you know, you can have an STI screen when you just start the relationship or just before. But the reality is sometimes STIs won't show up for several weeks afterwards. Yeah. So so what should be the regime in that space? And when is it safe to go, okay, well, I don't think we need to do this anymore? Yeah, so I think, you know, condoms are always great in the beginning of a relationship because you just don't know what that relationship, you know, where that relationship is heading. And then what people will often do when they're in a relationship and they, you know, are negotiating this condom use is they will go and have a sexual health checkup. As you said, there are some STIs that take a couple of weeks to show up. There are some that can take a bit longer than that. So I think go and get your sexual health checkup, get some advice from your doctor or nurse who's doing that about whether you need to retest as well before you stop using condoms. And then, you know, really think carefully about whether, you know, you are sure that your partner's not having any other partners because that's what you're relying on here really is Mm. that they've had a checkup, you've had a checkup in the right period of time and that there's nobody else in that mix. There are some STIs that we can't check for as well, you know, and um, so you just got to consider that that's a possibility, things like genital warts or herpes, but at the same time, you know, we don't want to, to be too worried about those infections because there's a lot of bad stigma around them that's probably unnecessary. So Mary, there can be a lot of pressure on women to not use condoms for the sake of their partner's pleasure. I mean, how many times, I'm sure you've heard it all the time, I hear it very frequently, he doesn't like them, it's not as good for him. So how do women navigate the, that situation, those difficult conversations around sex and protection, not just from pregnancy, but from STIs as well. Yeah, I think it can be difficult, but I think as in any sort of relationship, even if it's a casual sexual relationship, it's about communication. And if that's important for her, you know, whether that's because she's relying on it for contraception or for protection against STIs, then that should be respected. And if it's not, then, you know, maybe you don't want to be with this person, even if it's just for the night. So if a, if a sexual partner is, is constantly badgering a woman about not wearing protection 
That's actually not condom negotiation. That's actually potentially manipulation, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. So what what advice would you have for women who are in a situation like that? Because many women are, and it it's often very difficult for them to manage that situation. Yeah, I think one of the things is to have that discussion before you're in the heat of the moment. So to make sure it's really clear from the beginning that condoms are going to be a part of this consent process. And if that's not what they're happy with, your partner, then, then you know, you don't go ahead. Then they have to respect that. One of the things that I hear is people say, oh, my partner just can't find one that fits them or they just can't find one that works for them. And there are so many different options out there. There's also the female condom, although it's not used very often. Quite noisy as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's not always ideal, not easy to find either but you know you can buy anything online maybe give it a try if they say that they don't want to use a condom but you know it's about negotiating and and respecting what Mm. her wishes are and look sex can be fun pleasurable exciting it's really good for our physical health for our mental health all of those things that we want it to be but that doesn't mean you need to risk your health or risk your pregnancy does it if you don't want a pregnancy of course you know that's right. Sex should definitely be about pleasure and you shouldn't be, you know, needing to either experience those adverse effects of sex like an STI or pregnancy, but you also shouldn't be having to worry about them every time you're having sex. So I think to have that peace of mind that you can really enjoy your sexual life without having to be concerned about STIs or pregnancy as much as possible, it's really important as part of, you know, enjoying sex. Thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it. Pull and pray isn't the most effective contraceptive method. Like all contraceptives, understanding the risks and educating yourself on your own cycle is an important part of taking charge of your fertility. Contraception is a highly personal choice. What's right for you and your relationship might be completely different for someone else. So always remember to consult your GP before making any decisions about your health. Be sure to tune in next week where more health myths and questions are answered. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sne Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.